This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Are you going to be one of the millions tuning in for the King's coronation this weekend? The royal family saying it scaled things back for this one, but with golden coaches, crowns, diamonds, processions, how do you feel about this ceremony steeped in tradition? And do you reckon this could be the last one we see? We're about to explain what you can expect. Do you love the pomp? Maybe you feel weird about it. Also coming up, we break down a huge decision out of the NT today on fracking that's angered a lot of people. We'll tell you what it means. And we're taking you into the lives of young people who live with Tourette's syndrome. Hack. I do think with the colonial legacy as well, I'm not totally sure how people are going to react to it around the world. On Triple Jack. Yeah, to some people... It's a symbol of stability and tradition that should be respected to others, an archaic institution that has no place in modern society. The monarchy definitely divides people, and there's probably no other event that really encapsulates the intensity and the scale of this tradition than the coronation, when the king or queen gets crowned. And none of us have ever seen one, because the last one obviously was 70 years ago. But the world's changed a lot since then, The new king, Charles, is saying he's trying to shake things up, he's modernised the process. But as Shalala Madora explains, it's not always that easy to change tradition that goes back hundreds of years. I'm feeling very nervous about the whole London trip. Imagine it's your first time on a plane, but instead of a gap year or holiday in Bali, you're going to witness a major world event. They rang me up and said, hey, we would like to fly you over to London to go to the coronation. 18-year-old First Nations woman Taylor Aldridge is one of just 2,000 people from around the world who will get to witness the coronation of King Charles in the flesh. I did a TAFE course with um, in Maritime and that was run by Princess Trust and, yeah, I got chosen through them. The Princess Trust is a charity for young people founded by King Charles back when he was the Prince of Wales, which is why Taylor was chosen. She's got a few official engagements while she's there and it could mean she meets the new monarch. I think that's going to turn into excitement the more the closer I am. But not Everyone's excited. This stadium of Scottish football fans was less than enthusiastic. The coronation is a huge religious ceremony to crown a new king or queen after the old one dies. And because we're part of the Commonwealth, they're Australia's monarch too. The king or queen is also the head of the Church of England and they have to promise to uphold those beliefs. Some of the traditions involved go back nearly a thousand years. The coronation of King Charles III will be held at London's Westminster Abbey, the same place where 39 monarchs were crowned in 38 coronation services since 1066. There are a few different elements to the ceremony. It starts with the oath, which we'll come back to in a sec because this time around is a bit controversial. After the oath, the new king will be anointed with oil with a golden spoon dating back to the 12th century. Thousands from the armed forces will be on parade and 60 aircraft will take part in a coronation fly past. Then he'll be crowned and people will pay their respects in private and through a public procession involving a 300-year-old coach. 
like Cinderella, yeah. It's incredibly exciting, this gold coach carrying the sovereign, beautifully lit inside, so that they can be seen by the crowds on Coronation Day. Most of the traditions are pretty set, like how the new monarch sits on a 1,200-year-old stone pilfered from the Scots. The stone has been used in almost all of the coronations of English and British sovereigns. So, yeah, a lot of things are <clears throat> set in stone. But King Charles is trying to put his stamp on things, as royal historian Elizabeth Norton told RN Brecky. For the first time, leaders of other religions will be part of the ceremony. The Catholic Church, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster is there. Um, there are representatives of Judaism, Islam, Sikhism and Hinduism. More controversial, though, is King Charles's decision to make Commonwealth subjects, that's you and me, fam, publicly pledge support to the monarchy as part of the oath section of the ceremony. They are supposed to say, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and succession according to law, so help me God. And it's expected that everyone, wherever they are, will pause for a moment and say this out loud. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says politicians already do that. When we get uh, sworn in uh, to uh, parliament as members of parliament, as that you do uh, swear allegiance to the, the, the Crown. But Elizabeth says it could be a hard sell, particularly when there are growing Republican movements around the world. I suspect it was hoped that it would be seen as bringing people together and helping them to participate in the coronation. But this, I think, is a really interesting but also quite controversial part in the service. Hack on Triple J. Alala Madora with that update. And I'm wondering, are you going to be swearing allegiance to the new king? Why or why not? I'm keen to know. 0439757555. We've got so many messages flooding through on this one. Someone says, look, the coronation, bit of a novelty. It's a tourist attraction. That's about it. The royal family is nothing more than a tourist attraction in general these days. So I see nothing wrong with it since it's entertained. It's positive. Another person says, Albo, missing a trick here. A change of head of state is the perfect opportunity to extract ourselves from the monarchy. That one was from Christian. Another person, I'll be watching it. I don't really have an opinion either way, but my mum is a big royalist and we will have breakfast and watch. I figure it's literally an opportunity to watch history happen, so why not? And then someone else, I just got to say, not only will I not pledge allegiance to Charles Windsor, that's the name I will refer to him by, there should be no such thing as a king or queen, and I won't debase myself by pretending anybody's birth makes them better than me. Big opinions on the text line. Keep them coming through, 0439757555. I want to get into this a bit more now with an expert who looks at these traditions and can explain them a bit more to us. Dr Cindy McCreary is a cultural historian, associate professor of history at the University of Sydney, knows a lot about the royal family. Cindy, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. When you look back at the footage from the previous coronation in the 1950s, Queen Elizabeth's coronation, it looks like such a grand, in many people's opinions, ostentatious, over-the-top event. Do we know how much this is going to cost? We don't know. Uh, and in fact, that's very much a live issue in the UK in particular, where as here, there's a very acute cost of living crisis. Questions are being raised about the cost. One thing to note is that it's the British government, not the royal family, who is funding the event. 
and they also control the guest list. But they've also said that they will make the cost known after the event, but not beforehand. That's so interesting because I'm, and I imagine in the UK, especially if it is the British government funding it, there'd be a lot of scrutiny of that and people wanting to know now. When we are watching a royal wedding or there's a new baby or something happens in the royal family, you'll often hear that there's a bump in popularity of the royals. Do you expect that to happen with this coronation? Absolutely. Um, and there's actually been some really interesting work done by anthropologists who talk about the the benefits, if you will, the social benefits of things like royal ritual, because what it does, or at least what it's intended to do, is to bring people together and to get them to think about themselves, not just in terms of their individual life, but in terms of being members of a greater community, but also to think about their place in history and their links with history. And royal events do that. However, We also know that these royal events have a bump, but that it's not necessarily that long lasting. So in other words, while people came together, for example, for the Platinum Jubilee and then later in the year, um, the Queen's funeral, we also know that not long after that, there were discussions about the future of the monarchy. So I think that we can expect to see a boost in popularity for the royal family, for Charles immediately following the coronation. The big question is how long will that last? As you mentioned before, we are in really stressful times at the moment right around the world. A lot of people are doing it so tough, can barely get by. We have this big, massive spectacle playing out. Is there a possibility it could backfire and it could, you know, make people think very differently? And especially for us so far away, so far removed from what's happening in London. I think there's absolutely that risk. Um, and I think one of the flashpoints may well be around an innovation in this coronation, um, which is the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, now, I want to emphasize this is a voluntary act. It's by no means compulsory. What's happening is that Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Anglican Church, is inviting people, not just within the Abbey, but beyond. And that uh, affects not just people in Britain, but in the Commonwealth realms, which, of course, include Australia. We are a Commonwealth realm to really uh, affirm their allegiance to the king. Now, for some people, for monarchists, that was, is a wonderful thing. They, that gives them a chance to show their support. For others, though, and I think this is true in Australia, but also other Commonwealth problems, and for some in the UK, it's maybe a, a moment where people will start to think, well, hang on, what do I affirm? What, where is my allegiance? Um, should I be uh, um, showing my allegiance to a monarch or not? Does that not sit with where I am? And I think that will be a point of contention, not so much in the day, But I think following on, people start to think about what does it mean to be an Australian with my head of state as the British monarch? Interesting as well, the Prime Minister interviewed on British television overnight and we saw he was asked whether he would pledge his allegiance and he said that he would, despite also saying that he believes that Australia should have an Australian head of state ultimately. So there's a lot of conflict going on and it's it's a kind of interesting time, I guess you could say, because we've got a Prime Minister who thinks that Australia should have an Australian head of state. We've got Australia's new High Commissioner in the UK, Stephen Smith, who's said that a republic is only a matter of time. We've got New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins saying he's in favour of becoming a republic. Do you think the royal family would be, (laughs) in casual terms, freaking out a little bit about all of this that's playing out? Look, I think there are two things I want to say to that. The first is that constitutionally, our prime minister is doing absolutely the right thing. Remember, and he mentioned this in his interview, in 1999, Australia had a vote on whether to become a republic. And that what did not pass. Every year as well, as a member of parliament, Prime Minister Albanese and other members of parliament have to affirm an oath of um, allegiance to the head of state, which is the British monarch. So until that changes, 
the prime minister is correct, I believe, to pledge allegiance because I think that's his constitutional responsibility as our prime minister. But I do think the larger issue of will Australia become a republic isn't going to go away. I, I think that members of the royal family are certainly aware of this and I think they are concerned. But I also think, to be fair to them, they have indicated and Charles has indicated that he will absolutely respect the wishes of people in Commonwealth realms to to make their own minds up. And he is understanding of that. And that's quite correct, because constitutionally, that that is absolutely the case. It has to be down to a vote of the population. It cannot be a decision made by either a prime minister, let alone uh, the head of state, in other words, the British monarch. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese, speaking with Dr Cindy McCreary from the University of Sydney about the coronation of King Charles this weekend. And wow, you're sending through all your thoughts. There's a mixed text line. Some people dead against it. Someone on the text line saying an unelected leader. What a joke. Another person being pretty descriptive here. Dave, I'd rather drink a goon bag that's been in this Queensland sun for hours than pledge allegiance. Someone else I just threw up in my mouth listening to all the coronation crap. But then you've got someone who says, looking forward to it, Dave, this is a significant global event that is planned so everybody can see it. It's going to be amazing. And even if you don't believe in the monarchy or don't understand their place in stable government and society, it's still something you should watch as an important global event. Look, Cindy, there's a lot more scrutiny of the royal family these days, especially when it comes to young people. There's scrutiny of the traditions, the impacts of colonialism, certainly the the devastating impacts for First Nations people in Australia and around the world. We've been hearing a bit about the controversy of some of the regalia used in these ceremonies, like the diamonds, the stones, where they came from. How is the royal family going to deal with this going forward when it comes to these symbols and how they're seen, what they represent to people around the world. Yeah, so look, this is a really important issue, Dave, and a complex one. So so two responses. First of all, I think that the royal family is already responding. So we've seen, for example, the decision that Koenor, which is perhaps the most notorious of the British crown jewels, which is disputed by countries like India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and also the Taliban government of Afghanistan now is also claiming it. So the decision was made not to include the Kohinoor in the coronation ceremony. On the other hand, I should also point out that there are some other stones which are from the Cullinan diamond, which was perhaps the largest diamond ever discovered in South Africa in the early 20th century that are also contentious, although not to the same degree as Kohinoor. So there's still some contentious stones that are going to be visible in the coronation. But I think that I think, so. in other words, there is room to manoeuvre in the coronation. There is room to manoeuvre about what regalia is and is not included. The big contrast to that, the big exception, would be the coronation chair, which is a medieval chair that was built to carry, to hold, the Stone of Destiny, which is a stone that was previously used in Scotland for the coronations of Scottish monarchs that notoriously was seized by Edward I of England and brought back to Westminster where it has been in the coronation chair, which is built for it and has been the chair that has been used in the coronations for 700 years. That's a, that, that in itself is a very notorious object and really does in some ways still reference um, England's um, tyranny over Scotland in, in the past. Um, so I think the issue of regalia is a complex one, and I don't think that the British royal family can continue. I think we're seeing the first steps in that direction, but there's certainly a lot more Uh, that could and perhaps needs to be done, I think, in future. Do you think this will be the last coronation of a British monarch? Because do other royal families in Europe have these big elaborate coronation ceremonies? 
No, so the the British monarchy is the only European monarchy to still have a coronation ceremony. But I don't think it's going to be the last coronation because I think it is so linked to the British monarchy that to do away with it altogether would be to raise questions about, well, what's left? I mean, I think the, the spectacle, the tradition is so entwined with our image and our understanding of the British monarchy that it would be hard to imagine it um, going the way of what Charles, when he was Prince of Wales, once kind of jokingly referred to as the bicycling monarchies of Scandinavia, by which he meant the more you know egalitarian practices of his Scandinavian counterparts. That just doesn't really fit with the British monarchy's presentation of itself. I think what will have to happen, however, is a more scaled down future coronation and certainly a cheaper one. Um, because although Charles has said that this is going to, and the British government said this will be a cheaper, uh, simpler, shorter coronation, it's still starting to look like quite an elaborate spectacle. And I do wonder what the final cost will be. And I'm not sure that William, when it comes time for his coronation, could justify a similarly extravagant ceremony. Look, there, there are going to be a lot of discussions about the future of Australia's head of state, uh, the Republican movement. And we know right now we have an assistant minister um, for the Republic mm. in Australia, which is something new. Do you think that Charles will be the last monarch of Australia, the last king of Australia? I think that depends entirely on how long his reign is. Um, and sorry, this is a bit macabre, but he, he is coming to the throne as a 73-year-old. You know, his mother came to the throne in her 20s. So, of course, his reign cannot be as long as his mother's. But on the other hand, as, as our prime minister also noted in his interview in the UK, I don't think that Australia becoming a republic is something that's going to happen that quickly either. And we can already see the debate and division around the Indigenous voice to parliament, which I think perhaps has taken the government by surprise. That is proving to be a, you know, maybe a tougher sell than they originally envisaged. And I think they may be learning from that, that if they are to introduce legislation on a republic, on a referendum to become a republic, that also needs a lot of careful planning. So I think I think it's going to depend on on how long Charles's reign lasts and how long um, it takes for Australia to come to a referendum on a republic. Okay, well, look, it's definitely going to be a spectacle that many people will be stopping to to watch and to take in over the weekend. We appreciate your insight, your knowledge on all of this. Historian Dr Cindy McCreary from the University of Sydney, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. And more messages coming through. Someone says, look, it doesn't matter how modern they make it, it's totally out of step with society here and over there. I hope we don't see another one. No offence, Charlie. Someone else says, thank goodness we haven't lost everything from the past. And Reese has got a warning. Reese says, look, it might be a bad idea to do the coronation while Mercury's in retrograde. Reese, it's happening. Hack. The amount of times that I have said I am not on drugs, the amount of times I have said I'm just high on life, I've had people ask me, like, I'll have what you're having. On Triple J. Yeah, one of the things we know about TikTok is it's really helped people open up discussions about a lot of things. So give you a peek into the lives of those who live with conditions you might have heard of but don't know much about. Like Tourette's Syndrome. Do you know much about it? Because some research estimates about one in a hundred Australian school-aged kids live with Tourette syndrome. There's still a lot of stigma around it. A lot of people with Tourette say they notice people staring at them, making assumptions. So what is it like to live with this condition? Well, Kimberly Price takes a look and hey, there is a language warning on this one. Do you know when someone says, don't touch the big red button, and then you, you get that urge that like, oh, now I really want to do it? part of you that resists it's like we don't have that james was four years old when he was diagnosed with tourette syndrome 
a neurological disorder which causes a huge spectrum of involuntary movements and noises. It's kind of a hard disorder to understand and one that's probably not been shown in the best light. Are you telling me that if you have this Tourette syndrome, you can say whatever you want all the time and never get in trouble? It's a neurological disorder. He can't help it. That South Park episode was actually praised by the US Tourette's Association for stereotyping the disorder in a way that everyone could understand, but also giving facts. In recent years, it's fair to say there's been an increase of Tourette's present in the media, and musicians Lewis Capaldi and Billie Eilish have spoken about living with it. From when I was four years old, and there was no chance of going, I have Tourette's syndrome. Like, I had to say, go, I have hiccups in my brain. I got diagnosed when I was 11. The most common way that people react is they laugh because they think I'm, like, trying to be funny. And I am always left incredibly offended by that. Yes, I have Tourette's. I didn't mean for it to be a big thing. Why did you decide to go public with that? Because <laughs> uh, people think that I am on cocaine quite a lot. <laughs> And now I am the poster boy for Tourette's, which I'll take. I'll gladly, yeah. I'll gladly accept that. It's a testament that there actually is more and more awareness because all those people were able to empathise with his situation. And while James says there's still misconceptions out there, awareness has come a long way. Even just to have the understanding that people with Tourette's have a condition that they have no control of, regardless if they have the proper understanding, I think that is still a step forward. Mandy Macy is the president of the Tourette's Syndrome Association of Australia and her three kids live with Tourette's. So it's a one in 100, which actually when you look at those statistics is the same prevalence as autism. Oh, wow. So it's super common. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, but for a lot of people, it will just be a grunt or a sniff or a blink or a, a head nod that is easily disguised. Mandy says social media has done a lot of good work, with TikTok especially bringing the disorder into the spotlight. But it's also seen a rise in people faking or accused of faking Tourette's. It's used as an excuse. You know, you'll hear people going, oh, sorry, I know I swear a lot, but oh, it's like I've got Tourette's. And it's just like, that might be funny to them, but it's not funny to the people that actually live with the condition. But some of those misconceptions aren't funny. On a night out with a mate, James was falsely accused of being drunk in public. I really... <laughs> I obviously... Uh, <clears throat> hold on. i got I got to pace, Kim. No, that's OK. That's OK. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sorry, can you ask her to get in? Um, yeah, it's, it's just... So yeah, it obviously um because it's such it had such a I guess a psychological uh impact it's um and it was something that wasn't like it was just disgraceful. So it's obviously um anytime I uh think about it, it just yes. uh whew, exacerbates Oh man, what a workout, Kim. The event still has an impact on James. And he says when he thinks about it, as you can hear, his tics intensify. I was thrown against a bonnet. I was cuffed. All he kept yelling at me was stop resisting. I specifically and repetitively said, you can breathalyze or blood test me. Like there was no evidence of me being drunk in public. So not only did we end up in a cell the whole night, 
I had to pay a $480 fine. James is not alone. A survey by the Tourette's Syndrome Association found only 28% of people with Tourette's describe their encounters with first responders as positive. James wants more awareness out there of Tourette's, so situations like his don't happen again. When someone mentions Tourette's, there can be some form of um, de-escalation. Despite the tough times, James says he's learned to embrace his Tourette's and he wouldn't change a thing. I think one of the greatest silver linings with Tourette's is it has given me the ability to understand and feel for so many people. Like it's given me so much empathy and it enables me to just be a really genuine person. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price there with that story. Really interesting stuff. Important messages and a lot of support for James. Time to move on to some big news out today. Hack. It will help fund things like schools, hospitals, the things that Territorians need each and every day. The claim that offsetting a tiny fraction of your emissions makes it zero carbon is just nonsense. On Triple J. Yeah, a massive announcement was made in the Northern Territory today. I don't know whether you saw... It's got some people furious and it could have major implications for Australia's climate emissions goals. The NT government saying it's going to let gas exploration companies apply for licences to drill for underground gas in a process that's called fracking. Now, as always, there's different sides to this debate. Some are saying great for jobs, for investment. It'll help us transition to renewable energy. Others are furious, saying it's going to be terrible for the environment, for water security. Look, if you haven't been following this closely, it's all good because we've got our guy on the ground, hack reporter Miles Holbrook-Walk. He's with us now from Darwin. G'day, Miles. Thanks for coming on. G'day, Dave. Pleasure to be with you. Firstly, can you just explain a bit about fracking? Like, what is it and where exactly in the, in the NT are we talking about? Yeah, so it can be a kind of complicated process. Basically, you have these natural gas deposits that are hundreds of metres below the ground. And essentially what a company needs to do to be able to frack is they need to drill down these really deep distances to get to that natural gas. But because it's in hard to reach places with these drills, they have to actually inject chemicals and water and even sand at high pressure. That then forces the rocks to fracture or open up. And then that way you can start pumping the gas back up through that pipe. Now, this is something that is done in several other countries around the world, Canada, the US, even the Europe, even Europe, I should say. But the mood is starting to shift globally in some of those countries. And some countries that have done it for decades uh, are now considering moratoriums or banning it altogether. As for where it may now happen in the NT, it's about 500 kilometres southeast of Darwin in a place called the Beetaloo Basin. It's a huge area. It's almost as big as a European country like Belgium, for example, or you know, I think it's like 2 million football fields of size, this basin. And essentially, they're looking there at being able to undertake this process of fracking. The reason, as you noted off the top, is that people are really worried about some of the risks with fracking, like potentially contaminating groundwater sources if there's a spill in pipelining and uh, that kind of process there. Yeah, I imagine climate action groups are pretty furious about this, right? 
Yeah, furious to say the least. Exactly right. You know, the Climate Council today called the decision rotten. The Environmental Defenders Office says the Northern Territory Government is spectacularly failing to implement all these recommendations that were put forward by a report that basically they needed and promised they would meet before approving any sort of fracking. Now, those climate groups say they haven't done it. A hundred people have signed this open letter today. Some of them are scientists. Some of them are even former coal lobbyists, actually, and they're all said... Basically, the government hasn't outlined a clear pathway as to how it's going to be able to let this project go ahead without carbon emissions being produced in a neutral sense. But the Territory government says, no, 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 we're going to take care of it. We've got it covered. Trust us on this one, guys. Uh, And now also, other people that have raised a strong criticism about this is traditional owners. They're saying the government is doing this against their wishes and that they don't want this to go ahead. Earlier, I spoke to Johnny Wilson, who's the chair of the Nerdalanji Native Title Aboriginal Corporation. He lives within 20 kilometres of where exploration for gas has already taken place. Take the us. government has broken its promise to us that it will implement all recommendations of the Pepper Inquiry before fracking starts. In communities, it is clear that the government has not done a proper job of making sure Aboriginal people understand the huge impact fracking will have on our community. I don't believe a word they say. I mean, jobs and the economic developments they want to put in place is not happening. Yeah, right. That's traditional owner Johnny Wilson there. You're listening to Hack. I'm speaking with our NT reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk, about this big news out of the top end today that the NT government's given the green light to fracking in the Beetaloo Basin. Miles, look, the NT government has obviously made this big announcement. They've had a lot to say. You can catch all of that on the ABC News website. There's a big write-up there. We appreciate you kind of filling us in because it's a complex issue. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Always a pleasure, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.